Hi, I'm Jake Parker, and this is my podcast, Beyond Fit. My goal is to help you live a happier and healthier life by providing actionable knowledge and advice about a wide range of health and fitness topics, as well as self-improvement. If you want to find out more about me, visit my website, jake-parker.com. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Beyond Fit podcast. My guest today is Cody McBroom. He is a, a nutrition coach and trainer, has the tailored coaching method and Boom Boom Performance. This is my first time speaking with him on the podcast. I'm honored to have him on. I thought we would talk about something that's been at the front of mind for me and something that Cody's posted about a couple times in the last month and spoken with one of my friends, Mike Matthews, about, which is volume and how it relates to our training. And so I'll let Cody kind of give a little intro here, talk a little bit about himself. Thanks for joining me, Cody. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Thank you uh, for having me. Um, I mean, you said it, man. I'm a, I'm a nutritionist. I'm a trainer. And I run a business called The Tailored Coaching Method, um, formerly known as Boom Boom Performance, uh, which is still the title of my podcast, Boom Boom Performance okay. Podcast. Um, but yeah, man, I, I, uh, I'm a coach. I, I don't like... It, it's funny when people ask what I do or, or what my story is. It's like, man, I just coach. I just, mm-hmm. I love training. I love nutrition. I love studying the science of it all. And, and I love learning the psychology behind coaching and the art of coaching and how to be the best coach possible. So um, I run a team of myself and five other coaches and then two other employees. Um, but we have six coaches total. We work with people around the world providing evidence-based training and nutrition. Uh, that's, and that's really the bulk of it. Yeah. And how long have you been doing that for? Oh, fuck. Um, so I, I started getting into all this when I was 18. So mm-hmm. that was nine years ago. Um, I, I started coaching or like training when I was 19. So I actually got an internship and started training people uh, in a gym at age 19 um, while going to school. Uh, so technically eight to nine years, but I would, my business uh, as, as, as an entrepreneur three years maybe four mm-hmm. of, of doing this this on my own and really trying to pursue the entrepreneur route mm-hmm. and so for you two of the keywords that stick out when i see your stuff is number one tailored and number two lifestyle so you want to expand a little bit on why those are a point of emphasis specifically for you when it comes to coaching yeah um i think the reason we titled our company the tailored coaching method is because we talk about tailored coaching um, or mm-hmm. individualized coaching quite a bit. And I think it's really just that it's the act of individualizing the process to somebody, you know, um, you and I are different. So you and I are going to work better with a different training split, a different training frequency, a different amount of volume, um, different intensity. Uh, we have different lifestyles. We have different stressors. Mm-hmm. So our recoverability is different. We need different calorie intake. We need different macros. We need a different meal schedule. We need different nutrient timing. Like there's just so many things that can throw variables into the process of getting somebody results that we have found the best way to not only get people results, but actually sustain those results is is Mm -hmm. approaching it from a tailored position. So, um, so yeah, man, tailored is just kind of my, uh, my way of saying individualized. It's kind of my own, my own buzzword with it, but, um, it's just the way of, of truly creating something built for the individual because we believe that individualization is the key um, to successful and sustainable results. But I also think it's the, I think it's the future of the industry, to be honest with you. I think mm-hmm, that sure. everything keeps leaning more and more in that direction and more and more people are, are getting, I don't know if fed up is the right word, but not happy with templated 
protocols or like mm-hmm. recycled diets and recycled training programs that just go out to the masses and not getting general feedback and connection. You know, like one yeah. of the most powerful things of coaching is, is that human interaction. It's the coaching mm-hmm. connection week to week, day to day. Um, so we really yeah. pride ourselves in that. And then the lifestyle factor is just, I mean, you have to alter your lifestyle or be willing to improve your lifestyle in order to make this work. And I think, you know, a lot of people with flexible dieting and all these things come out really try to make it so stress-free and so simple that they neglect the fact that if you're not willing to make some sacrifices or alter your lifestyle or build new habits or uh, make this a part of your lifestyle, then it's not going to work. Like this is something that takes time and you really do have to commit to long-term of thinking like, this is something that's going to be a part of my lifestyle, like mm-hmm. the, my day-to-day movement, my day-to-day habits, my routine, my schedule, what I eat, where I surround myself, who I surround myself with. Um, I think lifestyle is a big part of it. So teaching people how to take all this science-based strategies with training nutrition and, and kind of put it into a lifestyle format where yeah. you can still go about your life, but you can do it the right way. I think, I think that's really powerful. Yeah, I love looking at all this stuff as, you know, just I I use the word lifestyle a lot, too, because I often think, you know, if you can dial in your your training and your your nutrition, you can get in good shape. Like, what's it all worth if you're failing your relationships or if you're not in the head, if you have trouble focusing and stuff like that, it all it all ties together with your mind and your body. And that's what I really like about it, too. One of the first words you mentioned was psychology. And I like that aspect too. That that's, I think one of the first and one of the biggest things that makes us all different and makes us all have to follow different uh, regimens and stuff of that nature. It's just that we all think differently. We all have these different viewpoints. And uh, in addition to our, our physiology. Yeah. hundred percent agree, man. I absolutely agree. So what I brought you on for, like I mentioned on Instagram is I thought that we could talk a little about volume here because it's something that I've been curious about. Uh, in regards to, I think that natural lifters, once you've been doing this for quite a while, you kind of start to run into plateaus and stuff of that nature. And I'm often curious how much I should push my volume, what all that entails. Uh, So why don't you, for a basis for us, kind of go over what volume is and kind of how you approach it for a client of yours? Yeah, so uh, there's two definitions to volume. Um, literally volume is going to be weights times reps times sets. Um, so it's, it's essentially tonnage, right? It's how much weight you're lifting in the gym and you take the amount of sets you're doing, the amount of reps you're doing times the weight you're lifting. And that gives you your total volume. However, when we're considering aesthetics, so what most people are after, they want to lose fat, build muscle, look better, um, and maybe get some strength along the way. It's not that relevant. Uh, I think a more uh, a clear and a more understanding definition would be sets per muscle group per week. And I think that's where most people look at volume for the most part. Um, but we could even break that up into sets per muscle per session. And I'll, and I'll cover that in a sec too. But I think volume in general is just kind of how many sets are you doing in, throughout your weekly workout, mm-hmm. right? Like how, how many total sets are you doing? And that's, that number is going to dictate the progress you make from a hypertrophic standpoint. So how much muscle you're able to build or how much muscle you're able to maintain, <clears throat> excuse me, during a cut, that's going to be predicted greatly by volume. And what they've found is that almost every time, and this is why volume is one of the most important aspects of training to, to monitor, um, almost always, if you, if you change, if you equate volume, it doesn't matter how you approach it, you're going to get the same result. So you mm-hmm. could do a low rep program, a high rep program, a moderate rep program, a three-day split, a four-day split, a five-day split. You can do a training frequency of two times a week or three times a week or one time a week. If volume is equated and matched up for, 
you're going to build as just as much muscle. You're going to maintain as much muscle. Like the actual adaptation response is going to be the same no matter what. Um, mm -hmm. And then another thing to consider with this is, is how much volume you do is, is it's a predictor of how stressed your physiology is, how, how stressed your tendons, your muscle tissue, your ligaments, your, your joints, and your, your literal nervous system is going to be. So fluctuating volumes over the weeks is what allows us to make sure that we're deloading and ramping up at the right times to progress uh, the results we're seeing and then also to pull back and allow ourselves to recover better. So um, I think volume is just one of those things that it's the biggest predictor of muscle growth, but it's also one of the most, the easiest things to track in order to manage progress, predict progress and make sure you're mm -hmm. managing recovery along the way too. Mm -hmm. So how do you usually go about looking that? And as it relates to intensity too, because you know, you hear a lot of different things about intensity. And I know that a lot of times people recommend like, for example, a lot of Mike Matthews things will recommend stopping two, two uh, reps short of failure most of the time and not going to technical failure often, at least on bigger exercises. But how do you make sure that someone, I think it's so unique in, you know, the fact that we don't always know exactly what that limit is. And, you know, people talk about RPE and what exactly that means and how you go about tracking volume as it relates to your own intensity. Because I kind of have a theory that is, is more so anecdotal, but uh, I, I, I haven't tracked my volume uh, exactly for a number of months. I did when I was in uh, a period of prioritizing muscle growth three or four months ago. And so now what I do is I, if I know I'm lagging on a body part, say I'm on my last day of the week, I'm going to train and I'm going to do five sets of bench. And that's going to be all that I hit for my chest that week. I'm going to prioritize really going all out and going close to failure and putting a lot of intensity towards it. Versus if I know I'm going to bench twice that week, I may hold back uh, how does that all factor in? Does that sound right to you? 100%. I, I would agree that if you're only going to hit something once, I think your intensity should be higher. Um, I also think you should define things a little bit differently. I like to consider intensity and then effort because intensity mm -hmm. technically intensity is, effort, okay. intensity is technically the load on the bar. So if we look at definitions inside of powerlifting, weightlifting, and stuff like that, when you're talking about intensity, you're literally talking about how much weight are you lifting? When a lot of people, when they think about intensity, they're thinking about how hard are you working? That's yeah, effort, right? And that has nothing okay. to do with the amount on the bar because you can do a light load, but so many reps that your effort goes mm -hmm. to the roof. Um, the other thing with that is I would agree with Mike Matthews. Um, I like to, to kind of leave one or two in the tank. I think that, you know, there's like a lot of talk about effective reps and things like that. And I think there's less of like the, this whole effective rep thing was basically like if you're within five reps of your failure, like that's that's where they're becoming effective. I don't think that's true because that would that would mean that reps one like if you're doing a set of 15, one through 10 were ineffective mm -hmm. and then only reps 11 through 15 were effective. And I, I don't think that's correct. Um, but I do believe that striving close to failure is one of the biggest keys to matching the amount of effort or intensity, depending on how you want to look at it, in order to stimulate muscle growth. Because muscle growth is literally a byproduct of stimulus and stress to the muscle. You're mm -hmm. going to stimulate fatigue and stress the muscle. There's going to be recovery that happens after that, and then an adaptation phase where your body literally builds new muscle tissue. That's the process of hypertrophy, right? Well, if we're leaving three, four, five, six reps in the tank, we're never reaching a level of effort that creates enough stimulus and tension on the muscle to cause that adaptation to occur mm -hmm. so i do think there is there's a purpose to going close to failure um but most research research has shown that if you take a set all the way to failure and then you take a set to two reps shy of failure the amount of muscle growth you get from the failure is equal to if not just barely above the stopping two reps shy 
but the neurological, the systemic fatigue from that going failure is going to last longer. So I could go to failure and squeeze out just like a half a percent of more gains, mm -hmm. but then I wouldn't be able to hit, hit that muscle group for four, five, six days because I'm so sore and I, my nervous system is so fatigued. Whereas if I stop two reps shy of failure, I only lose a half a percentage, but I can hit that muscle again in a couple days which by the end of the week, month, year, you're doing way more total effective volume and that's going to lead into more growth. Um, so I think it's, it's important because even in your example, like if I know for a fact I'm traveling and I can only hit this muscle group once, I'm absolutely mm -hmm. going to go balls to the wall. So I'm going to take that at half a percentage. But I also know that I'm not going to hit that muscle again for a while. If I know that I can hit that muscle again in a couple of days or three days or whatever my split is, like right now I do a push pull leg split. Mm -hmm. um, I know that, you know, chest, shoulders, triceps were Monday. I'm hitting them again Thursday because it's push pull legs, push pull legs. Mm -hmm. So if I go balls to the wall, I'm probably still going to be sore Thursday. But if I stop one or two reps shy of failure, I'm getting that uh, level of effectiveness and intensity and effort um, while achieving the maximum amount of volume. And I'm, I'm recovering enough to hit it again in a few days. And studies have mm -hmm. shown that a frequency of two to three times per week per muscle group is probably going to be more significant um, than one time a week. Uh, and that could be because there's, you know, you're sending that signal more frequently, or it could just be the fact that like, if you do all your chest work in one day, you have to do so much right. that you're super fit in the weights that you're lifting are lowering as the session goes on. Whereas if mm -hmm. I split that volume up, I can go year in each session, which is going to raise my effort and my volume technically mm -hmm. by the end of the week. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's what's tough, too, is like, there's just so many different nuances and things when you, you can never really talk about too much of this stuff in a completely black and white scenario, because there's yeah. so many different things. Like, one of the one of the most useful things I've come to realize is that, uh, kind of like you mentioned, the fact that there's, there's kind of diminishing returns, and you hit a body part so many times on a specific day, like I used to, and I think like a lot of people used to do more of like a bro spit where it was like all back was on one day. And so if you're doing, say, 15 sets of back which you know on paper looks like enough to stimulate muscle group uh, sorry to stimulate uh, muscle growth but if you know the last five or six sets you don't have near the amount of uh, effort or intensity then it's kind of going to be negated in that aspect yeah i 100 percent agree i think I, th so, I think a lot of people just forget the whole uh the whole recovery piece in general and, th and there's also mm -hmm. there's also a thing with adherence to you know like what mm -hmm, are you going to adhere mm -hmm. better to because i know like for a fact that I've, I've looked at program design for some people that i'm like the most effective thing might be an upper lower split but, but they might adhere better to a full body because they enjoy full body training more, or they mm -hmm. enjoy a bro split and it's like mm -hmm. well let's do as much as we can with that because it's more about what what are you going to adhere to and have fun with over the long haul now if somebody's mm -hmm. really into this and they're like i want to optimize everything I'm, I'm not going with the bro split Mm -hmm. Yeah. M more recently, I've kind of experimented more with like, I guess I would call it some full body type stuff, but it's more like I really emphasizing the fact that you get that kind of diminishing returns training a body part so much on a specific day. So I might do like a little bit of chest, a little bit of shoulders and a little bit of like calves or a little bit of abs or something like that where you're hitting like a lot of different body parts because i also like the fact that i don't seem to need as long of rest periods if i'm if i'm doing opposing muscle groups and stuff like that so there's a lot of ways you can go about it like myself personally i wouldn't say that at the current stage or even in the next you know the near future or the recent past i've like been 100 percent trying to optimize my muscle growth but it's always been something i enjoy and always something that i'm going to do and I think that once you, you have these principles in place, you can do a lot of different things and experiment with stuff like that, that I've, that I've really enjoyed and noticed the, 
uh, positive effects of stuff like that. Yeah, I think I think you brought up a good point too with the diminishing returns. I think a lot of people, like at first, it was said that as long as volume is equated, it doesn't matter. So people would be like, body, bro, split. It doesn't just hit your volume. Mm-hmm. But there's more research that's been showing anything more than eight, sometimes ten sets and a single muscle group and a single session actually does show diminishing returns. So they actually see mm-hmm. a drop in things like testosterone and and muscle protein synthesis and and an increase in muscle protein breakdown. So if we're having more muscle protein breakdown and less muscle protein synthesis, that ratio and balance is out of whack, and that's not going to lead to favorable results. You're actually you're going to have less muscle growth and you're going to have more stress. So for me, it's like looking at volume and frequency and, and intensity. It's, it's kind of like they're just organizational tools. So mm-hmm. if I have somebody that wants to build muscle and change their aesthetic, I'm going to focus on two thirds to three fourths of their total training to be higher volumes. So eight mm-hmm. plus reps. And then one fourth to one third of that is going to be lower than eight reps. So we can still have some neurological and strength-based training in there because I think that's important. Um, and then after that, I'm looking at their lifestyle and then their recoverability and I'm orchestrating their frequency and their split to see where I can put what. And then lastly, I'm calculating volume based on that split to try to hit between this like 10 to 20 sets per muscle group mm-hmm. per week because that's kind of like this big bell curve of where you fall. Um, but if we consider the fact that, you know, like some people need 21, 22, 23, 24 sets per muscle group per week because they're advanced. Now we have to look at things like a, an upper, lower, three times a week rotation. So upper, lower, upper, lower, upper, lower, upper, lower, which is six days in a row. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because each upper body session, I can hit chest, shoulders, back, arms, but I'll do like, you know, six to eight sets per muscle group per Mm -hmm. session and I can do them more frequently. So now I can hit more session sets per week on each muscle group without having those diminishing returns. Because if we do an upper lower split, that's just four days or a bro split. And we're trying to maximize to 20 sets per muscle group per week, let's say, but you end up doing 10 plus sets per session because of it. You're just you're you're better off going with less volume and having more time between sessions and recovering mm-hmm. better between so you can perform and have that going back to the effort have your effort at a higher uh, capacity, if that makes sense. Yeah. So in relation to all this, uh, I'd like you to talk about another thing that I heard you say on Mike Matthews podcast, which is I think uh, either you or Mike used the word trash volume. So what exactly is the, that to you? Yeah. So, um, I usually call it junk volume, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, junk volume is, is volume that is systemically fatiguing, but it is not contributing to muscle growth to a great extent. So a good example of this would be, um, I'm doing, let's say, let's say I'm finishing my session with six sets of bicep curls, Mm -hmm. but by set four, I'm smashed. And now my Mm -hmm. reps, I'm shrugging, I'm swinging, I'm using momentum, or I'm just going too heavy. Now I'm not only doing a little bit of bicep curls, but I'm doing a ton of forearm work. I'm doing a ton of trap work to shrug it. I'm leaning back, which is getting my spinal rectors involved and I'm not isolating the muscle. So I'm not really creating more of a hypertrophic, uh, hypertrophic response to my biceps, which is mm-hmm. the goal, but I'm systemically. So as a whole joint muscle nervous system, I'm, I'm fatiguing myself more. So I'm getting more time because I'm doing more volume, but the volume's not contributing to growth. So this is where I think that having strict form, full range of motion, and, and actually doing less and trying to get more out of it first is where you start and then you build from there. So if I have a, a, a fresh slate, I'm still like this big bell curve of 10 to 20 sets per week. I'm starting on the lower end and I'm mastering form. I'm mastering movement patterns. I'm building strength, building a foundation. And then once they understand what quality form and quality 
body volume is. Now I'm going to add volume and sets and, and reps and things like that to that over time through periodization so that it's not junk volume. Um, mm -hmm. So in short, I mean, I think junk volume is actually just volume that's not contributing to muscle growth, at least not to a great enough extent that it's worth it, right? The risk is higher than the reward because mm -hmm. you're, you're not isolating the muscle, you're, you have bad form, um, you're just burning out. And even like going back to the sets per session uh, per muscle group, if you go over eight, nine or 10, now you're starting to creep into that diminishing return area, right? Well, if that's the case, anything above eight working sets for a single muscle group per session is probably junk volume. Mm -hmm. If you're doing it and it's taxing you, but it's not contributing to muscle growth. Mm hmm. Okay, interesting. So uh, when you mentioned those numbers, like 10 to 20 uh, hard sets per muscle group is something that gets mentioned a lot. I've always been curious how that gets tracked as far as so in the example where you mentioned like upper body, lower body, um, a lot of times, what are you tracking as far as what do you use legs in, as an example? Obviously, uh, most of us know that legs are not just legs, but it's the quads, the glutes, mm -hmm. the hamstrings. So a lot of times, are you going about tracking volume for each one of those separate parts? It depends. So this mm -hmm. is where you kind of get into the nitty gritty, right? And I think mm -hmm. that, you know, there was a study that showed, I want to say it was either 40 or 45 sets per muscle group per week. Um, and they that's showed crazy. greater, greater results. And it's, that's insane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's way too much. But a squat counted for glutes, hamstrings, and quads. Mm -hmm. technically okay. you're working yeah, that well. was, yeah. And people forget about that. Like if you that read was kind of my other like, question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, 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 they're counting everything together. So really, if you isolated the muscle groups, it's probably back into that 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week. Mm -hmm. So I think if you stay within 10 to 20, I think starting at the, the bottom end of the uh, – like if you've never tracked volume, the best thing to do is, is to start a program, isolate your muscles when you're tracking volume. So like doing a bench press is a chest exercise right? It's not a chest, shoulder, tricep, which is what they do in the studies with those ultra high mm -hmm. volumes. Um, some studies do isolate it, but start at the 10 sets per muscle group per week and isolate your muscles when you're tracking volume. And then over the course of six months, slowly add volume until you find your personal tolerance. You'll, you'll get to a point where you'll reach what's called MRV, which is a, a term made by uh, Mike Isretel from Renaissance Periodization, maximum recoverable volume. This is where like you're overreaching, right? You're at the point where you're at the maximum amount you can tolerate and recover from. You're not going to be able to recover from it from for that long. You're you're basically walking on this tightrope, and you better get out of there soon, mm -hmm. right? So you go until you find that point, and once you find that point, you just drop a little bit below that. When you're a little bit below that, you're at what's called MAV, also coined by Mike, maximum adaptive volume. This is where we get the most out of our work. It's the maximum amount we can adapt from, and when we can adapt, we can actually recover and keep doing it. So you get to the peak and then you pull back with a mm -hmm. deload and then you come right in between that and you just stay there. Mm -hmm. um, and I would do it counting every uh, set per muscle group as like one thing. So benches, chest, overhead presses, shoulders, mm -hmm. um, you know, rows are, you're either doing a row for your lats or for your traps or your mid back, whatever you want to do mm -hmm. um, versus counting multiple. Now, some people will go even more nitty gritty if they really want to get into it and they'll do like one and, and half points. So like a squat would count for yeah. one for your quads and mm -hmm. a half point for your glutes. Mm -hmm. um, maybe a half point for your hamstrings, depending on how you squat. But like, I'm a very quad dominant squatter, so my mm -hmm. hamstrings don't get much attention. Yeah, um, I've heard that before a, too. Yeah, a bench press would be one for chest, half a point for triceps and, and shoulders. Mm -hmm. um, and, and all of it ends up being in that, that same range anyway. And I think that's mm -hmm. the most important thing for people to realize. Because even if you look at the maximum amount of volume you should hit for your chest compared to your triceps, it's about 50% anyway. So like what mm -hmm. most of us recommend is like, you know, you probably should be between four to eight sets 
per week per uh, small muscle group or like five to 10 maybe. And that's for triceps, rear delts, calves, biceps, like small muscle groups, big muscle groups like quads, glutes, chest, shoulders, back. Those are probably going to be 10 to 20. So mm-hmm. realistically, you can say, if I'm doing 10 sets for my chest, I'm going to do five sets for my triceps per week. And, and realistically, you're doing some triceps when you do the chest work mm-hmm. most of the time. Um, and it all ends up being in that 10 to 20 range. It's like mm-hmm. this huge bell curve and everybody kind of falls within it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other interesting thing, though, is like when, you know, you mentioned the, the bench press, which obviously a compound movement that's going to be highly effective. But uh, how do you prevent people from getting in the weeds where like, okay, I did 15 hard sets for chest, but say 10 of those were either like a chest fly on the bench or like a chest fly on the machine, which obviously doesn't have the same uh, sort of stimulus as a bench press or an incline press on the bar. So I would argue that it still is going to have the same stimulus on the actual pec, uh, just even if it's not loaded as greatly, only because Mm -hmm. it doesn't have the same amount of secondary, uh, muscle groups aiding it. So when we bench press, it is heavier. It's a bigger compound lift, but I also do have my anterior deltoids, my shoulders and my triceps mm-hmm. helping me on a chest fly. I kind of have my biceps helping me, but it's mainly mm-hmm. just, I'm just isolating shit out of my chest. So yeah, the weight is half as much if that, but I'm also isolating it to a greater degree. Um, and typically if we look at like, what are you bench pressing? Usually five to 10 reps, maybe mm-hmm. what are you doing chest flies with? Usually like 10 to 20. Mm-hmm. So you're probably doing twice as much volume from a reps perspective as well. Um, so if we, kind of come back just to stressing a muscle locally, I think that the fly is probably going to actually have the same carryover um, as a bench press. That doesn't mean that a fly is better than a bench press or a bench press Mm -hmm. is better than a fly, but I think it it allows us to count volume in the same fashion between the two. Um, And on top of that, if we look at how muscles, like the anatomy of muscles, certain muscles are long, certain muscles are fan-shaped, for example. Um, And with like fan-shaped muscle groups, you're supposed to hit them from different different points. So uh, a pec is a fan-shaped muscle. You should do some kind of pressing movement. You should do some kind of fly. A lat is, a, is something similar too. You should do some kind of row and you should do some kind of pull down. Um, so you're stimulating the muscle from different points in different regions. Um, so the resistance curve is different. The tension on the muscle is different. Uh, but again, locally, it's all coming back to the idea of like, you're stressing the muscle <laughs> no matter what. So mm-hmm. you can basically count that volume towards the volume on that muscle no matter what. Does that okay. answer that question? Yeah. Yeah. And then going back to uh, the two acronyms you used, I think were M- MAV and MPV. Am I saying that right? MAV and MRV. So and, MRV. Um, and there's a bunch. So there's, there's MV, which is maintenance volume. There's MEV, which is minimum effective volume. MAV, which is maximum adaptive volume. And then MRV, which is maximum recoverable volume. And it's okay. kind of this spectrum of like, you need this much MAV, mm-hmm. so maintenance volume to just maintain your muscle. So on a cut, for example, this is the minimum amount you should do. Mm-hmm. You've got to maintain. Um, there's minimum effective. So this is the least you have to do in order to stimulate muscle growth. There's maximum adaptive, which is the range that you should be in most of the time because that's where you're going to get your best gains from. And then there's MRV, which is the most you can recover from, which is kind of like a, a overreaching stage where mm-hmm. you reach to that point and then you pull back. Yeah. So in my mind, like it all, it all sounds well and good, but it's one of those things that almost is like seems more effective on paper. Like where I, where I get curious is like, how does one go about knowing, you know, like without there's obviously some signs that someone will know if they've been informed or if they've been doing it for a long time, like lack of sleep, you know, uh, not feeling as well in the gym. But what if someone, and I think in the example uh, you gave was 
maybe a beginner or intermediate, how does somebody who's a beginner or intermediate go about knowing where that threshold is? Yeah, I think you have to, it's a really slow process to be honest with you. I think mm-hmm. the Just best kind of like bet, trial and error. Yeah. And I think the best, and just recording what you're doing, I think the best mm-hmm. bet is, is always hiring a coach because mm-hmm, for sure. when I can calculate my client's volume and I can listen to their feedback and ask them questions about how they're, how are you sleeping? How's your stress? How do your joints feel? How I like, are you, I can see your numbers in the gym. You're not progressing anymore. Mm-hmm. I know the numbers and I can tell like, Oh, we're, we're at MRV. We got to pull back. Um, same reason why I have a coach. Uh, I have someone mm-hmm. that does all my stuff and he helps me with that point. So I don't have to think about it because I think having an un uh, emotionally bought in person. So an external f- feedback coming from somebody else who doesn't have an emotional buy-in to what I am doing or me personally, I think they're going to have a better point of view on how to adjust and what to do. Um, but the main thing we're looking for is any biofeedback signs that, that you're just under recovering. Um, and I think it's a slow process because you have to stay at each volume range for at least a few weeks in order to really know what's going on. So you're, you're at MV maintenance volume for three weeks nothing is happening. You're not growing. You're not getting better. Like, nothing, like, you know, like you're getting more pumps in the gym. Okay. Move up, add some sets. Now you're, mm-hmm. you might be in MEV. You're starting to see a little bit of progress. You're feeling better in the gym, but you're not making big strides. You go a little bit higher and you find MAV you think, but you won't know if that's really MAV your maximum ad- adaptive until you push into MRV. And that's usually where you get to a point where you get one, two, maybe three weeks in and you're like, man, I need to deload. Like, I don't feel like going to the gym. One of the biggest predictors of this is uh, mental motivation to actually train declines. Mm. So I track motivation on a scale of one to five with my clients. And as soon as I see that number start dropping, I know that we need a deload or a diet break because we're probably Mm -hmm. pushing it too hard. So that's a big one. Cravings, stress, poor sleep, um, having trouble waking up, tired and wired. There's so many different things that happen. But at the end of the day, if you're Mm -hmm. under recovering and you're just dreading the gym, by week two or three and you're like man i can't wait to drop volume or do deload you're probably an mrv you're probably in yeah. the maximum recoverable if not a little bit higher and you're not necessarily overtraining, but you're overreaching mm-hmm. um but that's not a bad thing there there is a time and place for overreaching and get to getting to that point where you're doing so much work that you can barely recover from because there is some studies that show a super compensation effect so three weeks in and i'm doing this mrv i'm doing more volume than i can recover from Mm -hmm. and i'm starting to get beat up now i pull back after three weeks i haven't made any gains in the last three weeks because my body can't catch up but i deload into a low volume phase and my body super compensates and catches way up and i rebuild muscle tissue rapidly and then i come back to a Mm -hmm. lower point of volume and work back up so it's 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 difficult for beginners and intermediates and i would argue beginners don't even have to worry about it because they'll get mm-hmm. new gains so they'll mm-hmm. gain no matter right. what don't stress yourself out with this kind of shit um intermediates you can start kind of playing with it but more importantly just try to stay in that 10 to 20 and for advanced lifters who have been doing this for years and years and years that's where you can say hey i'm going to take six months and i'm going to slowly like increase volume over two months and then overreach deload repeat overreach deload repeat and just keep doing that over six months to a year and you'll make better gains because of this Mm -hmm. idea of phasing it um but again i think that's saved for the advanced individuals yeah yeah i think just like everything it's all about a balance and i think that that the kind of point that you were just making there is a big reason why i personally have never well not not have never because it was definitely a big uh, emphasis when I first started training like as a teenager but I'm not big on pre-workout because I feel like that makes it easy to like not listen to your body and you know like when you say motivation you take a scoop of pre-workout you get in there and you know you get all hyped up or like if you're you know you're not feeling it and and there's times too when like I know going into a workout uh, I've been doing it for long enough where I know when I need to taper back and when that feels appropriate 
And so I don't like when people kind of get almost like addicted to their pre-workout where they really need to get that hype up for their, for their gym session, because it may be, uh, hiding something that you need to address, you know? Yeah, I would agree. I think that takes time to, to learn how your body, Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, the signals your body gives you to be mm-hmm. intuitive about it. I think it takes time because cause I'm the same way, man. There's certain weeks where I'm like, yep, I got to pull back this week or I got to, mm-hmm. and I adjust that based on my life. You know, what's going on with my business, with my family, things like that. Exactly. Um, and pre-workout it's a good, it's a good take. I think that uh, I like saving pre-workouts for like cuts because yeah, I, I agree. I agree. But mm-hmm. if you need a, a pre-workout when you're in a bulking phase or gaining phase, you're under eating, you're not prioritizing hydration or sodium, like you're not getting enough sleep, there's something going on, you should have plenty of energy from the calories you're eating to Mm -hmm. get in the gym and train. Um, I I don't think there's anything wrong with things like uh, if you take like citrulline malate or something like Mm -hmm. that, it's not going to give you energy, but it will increase the pump and the oxidation to the muscle. Mm -hmm. I think that's okay. But I agree with you, like getting cranked up on caffeine um, in a surplus is kind of pointless. I think you should save it for a cut when you really do need it. Yeah, I've definitely, I've definitely always done the same thing. Uh, speaking of cuts, another thing I wanted to go over here is, you know, you mentioned a lot about recovery and about these different statutes of volume, but how, how does this change when someone's in a calorie deficit and really trying to lose body fat? Uh, besides just the fact that you can kind of speak on this too, that obviously you, you mentioned the word deload, those are probably going to be uh, more frequent and more needed in the calorie surplus. And so how does that get navigated with this sort of stuff? Yeah, I think, um, honestly, I, I think deloads should probably be about the same in a cut yeah. in a surplus. And the reason I okay. think that is because I think when you're in a surplus, you can push training to that overreaching point. So mm-hmm. you're going to need those, those deloads more often. Um, in a deficit, you can't really go into that overreaching. However, mm. you're in a deficit, so you have less energy coming in. So you're still probably going to benefit from having those deloads. Um, and, and in my experience, I don't think it makes a difference between a cut and a deficit, or I'm sorry, a cut and a bulk. It, it's mm-hmm. more so just person to person. I have some clients that need every fourth week, like every fourth week's deload, no matter what. And then mm-hmm. I have other clients that it's every seventh week. They can go six weeks strong before they need to deload. Um, and then we have some clients that they never deload because they only train three days a week and the other days they're completely resting and they're not in a huge deficit and they never need to deload whatsoever. So it's very individual based on person, personal stressors, I think, um, and recoverability. But I think that volume during a cut, there's, there's a couple schools of thoughts on it, right? So there's some people that say you actually need more, so you should keep volume super high and if, if anything, increase it a little bit during a cut because you need more volume to maintain muscle when you're in a deficit. And there's other people that don't suggest that. They suggest going down towards like maintenance volume because you can't recover from that much volume while you're in a deficit. And I think it depends on what you're doing. Um, and, and there's no black and white answer, like you said earlier. And there's kind of this gray area, there's balance to have. Mm-hmm. I think if you're doing a mini cut, um, I think higher volume might be the route to go because if you're doing a mini cut, most likely you've been bulking and you're doing a very short cut. It's not going to be long enough to really start to see like burnout and, and overtraining. So if you're only cutting for 48 weeks and it's like super aggressive and fast paced and you crank protein up for it, I think you'll be fine keeping volume pretty high and that'll probably Mm -hmm. actually help you maintain. But if you're doing a 12, 16, 24 week cut, like a long fat loss phase, um, I I personally believe like having a balance between that like maintenance and and maximum adaptive volume is probably best. There's going to be some weeks where you just can't go that hard because you're tired and you're drained and you can't train that Mm -hmm. much. And, And I think the negative effect of training too much, having more frequent cortisol elevations and being more stressed is going to lead to less fat loss results than training enough in theory, quote unquote, to maintain muscle. So I'm a bigger fan of lowering volume into a cut. Um, 
not below maintenance, mm-hmm. but enough to where you can adequately recover and keep effort. Going back to that, that effort and intensity we mm-hmm. talked about. If you keep volume too high during a cut, your effort's going to drop significantly because you're tired, you're in a deficit, and there's just too much work to be done. So I'd rather mm-hmm. do less and have more effective volume done um, versus keeping volume as high as I can during a cut and half of it turning into that junk volume we referred to earlier. Mm-hmm. And so how do you look at uh, like rep numbers in a cut? Because I was kind of a, a little surprised about what you mentioned earlier is I was not necessarily uh, aware of the fact of how much reps come into play as far as volume, when you talked about like chest flies being higher rep, because some of those exercises are naturally more higher rep. Like you don't really want to do like a set of five for tricep extenders or bicep curls where exactly that's going to be like your gravy spot for deadlifts and bench and stuff like that. So how does that factor into a cut and just in a volume in a broader sense? I, I think it doesn't change. I think for most part, besides lowering volume a little bit, I think you should train as if you're trying to build muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the best way to build muscle is to have a, a wide variety of rep ranges. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I think about two thirds of your volume should be in the higher end. Um, and even with compounds, I mean, your compounds can go up to eight, you know, you can even go up to 10 or 12 if you really wanted mm-hmm. to. But I typically like to see people doing a little bit of low volume stuff. So about a fourth of their volume, let's say doing threes, fives and sevens um, for the bench, overhead press, squat, deadlift. Um, and then maybe some sixes, but more like some eight to tens on things like hip thrust, lunges, mm-hmm. leg press, rows, presses with dumbbells, stuff like that. And then 12 to 20 for flies, lateral raises, tricep extensions, mm-hmm. curls. Um, part of the reason for that is because if you go too heavy on a lateral raise or a tricep extension or a curl, you're just going to hurt your elbows, right? It's mm-hmm. jump volume. You're not getting that much out of it. And it's just banging your shit up. Yeah. Um, whereas if and you double feel- the reps and lower the yeah. load, you're getting the same benefit without the joint stress. And I just feel like when you're tr- like, for example, a lateral raise, where you're really trying to contract the delt. I just, I don't find you can do that with like five to 10 reps, really. Or yeah, it's you really, really start difficult. feeling that pump and that burn when you hit like mm-hmm. eight, 10, 12 yeah, reps, and exactly. then you feel good by 15. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would agree with that. And, and I think in most studies, what we see is that the best results come from a wide range. So you should have some low rep, some moderate mm-hmm. rep, and some high rep. And that's why like daily undulated periodization was like a really the, the classic version of it is more for powerlifters where you have three days a week mm-hmm. you're doing bench squat deadlift at three different intensities. But I think p- applying the concepts that they saw there where people were hitting speed and speed and power, they were hitting strength and they were hitting hypertrophy zones for the same muscle groups. And they were seeing significantly better results. I think that's a really good sign that saying like, Hey, we shouldn't neglect low rep training and bodybuilding, or we shouldn't neglect high rep training and powerlifting. Like if you want to get strong and big, or if you just want to build muscle, or if you want to maintain muscle on a cut, like we were talking about, I think the best route is to have a mix of those rep ranges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Periodization is a whole nother topic, but I think it's safe to say that most would agree that getting that wide range uh, throughout the course of maybe just call it a year is very important. Would you say that that's accurate? Yeah. And I would even say a week. So I think there's two, there's two routes you can take. Like you can Mm do an easy way to explain is an upper lower split. So Mm -hmm. an upper lower split, you could have like a a low rep upper day and a high rep upper day. And then Mm -hmm. you accomplish that every week and your low rep might, you might start with threes on the bench and then go to like like sixes on a bent row and then hit some like eights and tens, but not go over that. And then on the second upper body day, you're starting your compounds. Let's say it's an overhead press with eights. You go to like a lap pull down for 10 and then you're hitting isolation work for the 12 to 20 rep range. Um, and, and you're accomplishing that in a week. So now you're taking your periodization where you have to think about a year or a month and you're bringing it down in a week, which mm-hmm. is actually really, really effective. Um, most people that I've, I'm seeing having the best results were doing that on a weekly basis. And then what I'm periodizing over 
the course of months is actually their uh, effort and their okay. volume. So we okay. are increasing or decreasing technically RIR as the weeks go on, reps and reserves. So we might start with three yeah. reps in reserve week one, then two, then one, then zero. So now by week four, you're going to failure. And then we pull back to reps and reserve three mm-hmm. on everything. That's like a natural deload mm-hmm. and rinse and repeat. So you're increasing intensity as the weeks go on. And that's your periodization plan. Mm-hmm. Or you can do it with volume. So you start with two sets of this, these three exercises, and then you go to three, mm-hmm. and then you go to four, and then you pull back. Um, I don't like doing that. However, it's, it's really effective. And in, in, uh, I know a few people that have put a lot of good information about like increasing sets per muscle group per week as the, the weeks go on and then deloading and rinsing and repeating. And it works really, really well. The problem with that is, is you go from training for 30 minutes to 40 minutes to an hour and a half. Some people yeah. just can't <laughs> be in the gym for that long. So for mm-hmm. me, I like periodizing through uh, reps and reserve and intensity and effort because that allows them to go heavier and increase their effort and get closer to that failure threshold while staying in that broad volume mm-hmm. and hitting multiple rep ranges per week. Yeah, that's cool. I never, I don't think I'd ever been really familiar with that, but it does make a lot of sense. Um, it's funny just go, going back to like the cutting thing is like, I was just thinking, you know, back in like the early 2000s, to like mid or like not 2000, but like early 2010, mid 2010s was when I was first starting to lift all on my own. And it was like that classic, like bodybuilding bro science of you do the high reps when you're cutting and low reps when you're bulking. And yeah. that was like, it. that was like the only periodization I'd ever known. Yeah. Uh, definitely wrong now. And I did the mm-hmm. same thing. Um, but I think, I think it's, it's one of those things too, where it, it we're going to get more out of doing a wide range instead. And, and like, if we do a periodization plan where we're like, like a classic linear periodization block, linear periodization for a power lifter, you're, you're starting with an accumulation phase and you go to intensification phase, and then you go to a realization phase. And what that means is you start with a phase, maybe it's a mesocycle that's four weeks or six weeks and it's very high reps. So you're doing sets of 20, 15, 12, 10 high volumes. Then you go into an intensification where you drop, volume significantly and increase how much weight you're lifting and then you finish with a peaking phase a realization phase where you're maxing out you're doing really low volumes and really high intensity the problem with this is by the time you finish that you've detrained your ability to hit those high rep ranges you've detrained your muscular endurance uh your your lactate threshold your metabolite accumulation threshold things like that 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 build into hypertrophy and there's the one hand it's a benefit because you sensitize your body to it so you kind of get this like rapid like like kind of reintroduction to it but the problem with detraining it is that now when you go back to those eights and tens and twelves you have to lift less weight because you're not used to it and it takes you a few weeks to catch up to where you were and then you're almost mm-hmm. done with the mesocycle so rather i think the smartest approach is every like two or three mesocycles and a mesocycle being one training block so it could be four to six weeks or three to six weeks let's say you should do a low volume phase for three to six weeks where like every few programs you throw in a low volume phase where you do less reps more weight focus on strength and then you come back to high volumes and that's going to desensitize you to those higher volumes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of uh, mind pump. I don't know how much you ever listen to those guys, but yeah. if anyone listens to it, like one of the things they like to talk about a lot is like, we've talked about a couple different scenarios where, where something might be the best, but something they like to point out is like the best for you is always what you're not doing. So if I was someone who had been like attached to that four to six rep range for months on months on end going into that high like more 12 to 15 emphasis is going to bring a lot of muscle stimulus to me so I think that's important to remember too is is it sounds like if you're doing something like you're talking about you're not going to have any glaring uh uh things like that that are that you're not hitting but I think that's important to know too is I think variance 
I agree with that, but I think it's more accurate to say uh, what you haven't been doing because some people get carried away with that where they're like, well, I did high reps last week, so I'm going to do low mm-hmm. reps this week. And then moderate. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, yeah, the best thing is the thing you're not doing right now, but you also need to do that thing for a while. Consistently, before, right, 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 yeah. Before you switch. Um, but I also would say this too, because I've always, I've actually always said that the best thing you do, the best program is the program you're not following. I got that from Joe DeFranco and I love the mind pump guys. I actually know him personally. And, and the thing I will say about that is because I used to agree with that quite extensively mm-hmm. and they did, they actually did a study and they reviewed this in mass research review. It was really cool. And they basically tried to emulate that theory of like changing things up, but keeping volume the same and it showed no difference. It didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Now I think that difference you would see is like, if you haven't done 12s in a while, you'll feel a huge pump. Like, mm-hmm. so maybe you feel psychological like, too. Yeah. Psychological. And, and that can lead into better motivation, better mm-hmm. ambition, mm-hmm. better drive, better effort. So that's, that's powerful. But what they showed is the only way that you're going to see this, like almost like you're shocking the system, like by yeah. doing something you haven't done in a while is if it's been a really long time, like I'm talking more mm-hmm. than a year, like they, the only group that they saw any difference in was taking weightlifters who just do Olympic lift and they put them on a bodybuilding training program and they haven't bodybuilded in three plus years and they saw significant muscle growth mm-hmm. um but that's because it's something dramatically different after years of doing something else so like when someone comes to me and they've been doing crossfit for a long time and they have aesthetic goals and i make a big change in their training i see huge differences but it's because it's such a new stimulus that they haven't done in years versus it's been a few weeks since i've done this yeah and it's also like one of those things where it goes back to some of that bodybuilding bro sciencey type dogma where like the thing you'd always hear is like Arnold Schwarzenegger said you got to shock the muscle so I'm going to do like a drop like five drop sets of bench press or I'm going to do like a hundred curls or something like that right. where you can you can get kind of ridiculous with it too yeah 100% agree so the last thing I wanted to make sure we we get in as we wind down is something I've kind of been wondering as far as my own goals and uh, as far as like, if someone were an athlete or something too, I kind of mentioned this to you, how do you look at recovery? If someone has another, uh, something that's kind of pulling away at their recovery, possibly in the past six months, I've gotten really into yoga and I think people might not know it actually, some yoga classes are really tough and I kind of feel like take a little away from my recovery. So how do you look at someone who has another activity that plays a big role? Uh, I would especially look at probably a more visceral example would be like an athlete that's in season or something like that. Yeah, I think I think yoga can go both ways. I think there's some yoga that can help you recover and some right, can right. inhibit. But that's the same thing with like cardio, right? Mm-hmm. Some cardio can help recovery. So if you go on a long walk, that'll help recovery. Mm-hmm. But if you go jogging, that's not going to help recovery. It's both cardio. And, and some people will say, oh, well, like, like running like calms me down. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. but you're still fatiguing your nervous system and your joints. So I think like the way I look at it is kind of like, I don't know why, but I always have this image of two shelves. Mm-hmm. One shelf is your sympathetic nervous system the other one is your parasympathetic nervous system Mm -hmm. and this is basically like stress intensity going all out and then it's Mm -hmm. recovery relax digest recover rest um and you have to match up those shelves so you have all these things on the shelves and if we look at the sympathetic the stress side for most people it's like well i go to the gym four times a week i'm in a calorie deficit because i'm trying to cut uh my work has been killing me um i just had a baby so i'm not getting much sleep me and my wife are fighting like and and Mm -hmm. they have all these things right And then you look over here and then not to mention like blue lights and all the electronics Mm -hmm. and all that shit. And then you look over here and it's like, what are you doing for recovery? Well, you know, I do a salt bath once a week and get six hours of sleep. Okay. That's not enough. Right. Right. Like you're not doing anything. You're not taking diet breaks. You're not taking deloads. So I think like you have to look at these shelves and go, 
for everything on here, am I doing something over here over the course of months that's going to help that? So am I mm -hmm. doing restorative yoga? Am I stretching? Am I doing mobility? Am I getting seven to eight hours of sleep a night? Am I taking two salt baths a week? Am I getting a massage? Am I in a, a surplus or, or maintenance for a diet break every three weeks? Am I taking deloads every four weeks? Whatever it may be, you have to kind of match up those recovery. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that like, you have to look at recovery globally, not locally. And what I, or I'm sorry, stress globally, not locally. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is a lot of people only think about training. They're like, yeah, that's exactly what I was my training say. stress. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like, you have to consider emotional stress, mm -hmm. mental stress, physical stress, like everything. Um, and, and I would have people consider, and they actually have some studies that show this too. If, if anybody listening hasn't read, uh, the recovery manual by James Hoffman or my podcast I did with him where we just talked about the book really, really powerful stuff. But like one of the biggest benefits of massages wasn't the soft tissue release. It was the fact that you were quiet, not looking at a phone. It's dark, there's music and you mm -hmm. had physical touch for an hour. So it's more about dropping yourself into that parasympathetic system. So for a lot of my clients, I'm like, Hey, can you lay down and do some belly breathing for two minutes after you work out? Hey, can you take a walk at the end of your day so you can calm down after work? Um, can you meditate in the morning? Are you reading anything? Like, what do you do for fun every week? What do mm -hmm. you do for fun? Are you going to the movies? Do you watch Netflix? Do you have a show? Like, like people forget about shit like that. So for me and for a lot of my clients, it's, it's actually looking at lifestyle stressors and how we can do like little things to de-stress because that's going to help us accomplish more training volume more than people realize. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Well, I think that's a good way to end. Uh, we basically had all the points I wanted to hit and like, I'm glad that we ended with that whole stress thing, because I think that's among the things that people don't look at stress is one of the number one things that I, that I wish that people would pay closer attention to. And that's one of those things where it's just like over time, you'll, you'll understand your body more, but you have to be aware of, like you said, emotional stress, mental stress, physical stress to your body. It's all stress. And I really like that example of the balancing of the two shelves. I'm going to, I'm going to, kind of think about that and how that relates to my life too yeah man absolutely i think i think it was a great place to end and i think you asked a lot of good questions we covered a lot of really cool topics yeah 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 for sure so one more time uh you want to say anywhere people can find you i know you have your podcast and your instagram that's the two main routes that i know anything else yeah, uh, everything is at tailoredcoachingmethod.com. Um, that's cool. where we put all of our content. But uh, on Instagram, I'm probably most active at cody.boomboom. And then the podcast is called the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again. And I uh, hope to talk to you again. Yeah, man. Thank you. Hey, it's Jake again. If this podcast provided you any value, I'd encourage you to share it with someone who you think might enjoy it. In addition, it'd really help me out a lot if you would go and subscribe or leave a review for my podcast. It's super easy. And in addition, if you have any questions or comments, I'd love for you to reach out to me by email or Instagram DM, which can both be found on my website. Thanks.